Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. To say the very least, I am not a handyman. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. Now I have, as many of you, you know, over the course of time, learned learned a few things, and you, you learn how to do a few simple projects, but if it involves much more than a hammer, a screwdriver, maybe on a good day a pair of pliers, I'm out. I don't know anything beyond those few things pretty much. And because of that, because I don't have, you know, the expertise in that area, and sometimes because fixing certain things or making certain things look nicer may cost, you know, quite a bit of money, you have to save up the money and those sorts of things. Sometimes around our house, like maybe around your house, there are some projects that just remain undone longer than Leah would like, but not forever. They, they, they stay undone at least for a little while until we either learn how to do it or we can afford to have it done. But can you imagine having a project, a major project, not, not, not just making something look nicer, but a major project, having it undone for more than a decade and a half. Now, I don't want to see any of the wives doing this when I ask that question, but can can you imagine that? A major project, something that has to be done, and it stays undone for more than a decade and a half. That's what we see in the little Old Testament book of Haggai. In 2018, our theme is focus, and for the next four Sunday mornings, this morning included, we're going to be in that little two-chapter book that maybe you've never even read before, just a little short book that sometimes is hidden to us, as we read through the Old Testament and consider the things of Scripture. But before we get to that book, to set up this lesson as well as the entire series, I want you to turn back in your Old Testament to the book of Ezra. And I'll explain why in just a moment. As you're turning to the book of Ezra, specifically Ezra chapter 3, I want to remind you of the, the setting of what's going on. God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews, the nation of Judah, had been wicked for a long, long time, and though God had sent prophets and people to them and warned them over and over again, for decades and even centuries, they had fallen further and further into sin. And finally, God's patience wore out, and they were taken away into captivity, Babylonian captivity. But all along, God had told them that that captivity would not last forever. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah had told them it would only last 70 years, and so it did. And when you come to the book of Ezra, What you are reading about are the people beginning to return back to the city of Jerusalem to redo the work, to rebuild the work there in that city. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra, the people are led by a man named Zerubbabel, and they rebuild the altar to God. You see that in Ezra 3, verses 1 through 7. But then in Ezra 3, verses 10 and 11, 
we see them beginning to rebuild the structure of the temple itself. And what a wonderful thing that must have been as they rebuilt this central place of worship to God. Notice what's said in Ezra 3, verses 10 and 11. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, excuse me, was laid. That's great. That's wonderful. All this shouting and joy and praise. But it wasn't all celebrating. Because in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 12, the very next verse, we're told that some of the older people who were there were actually upset by what was happening. They were weeping because the foundation that had been laid made it clear that this temple that was going to be built was not as large, not as spectacular as the one they remembered from their youth before they were taken into captivity. In fact, Ezra 3 verse 13 tells us that people far away could hear a noise coming from the city of Jerusalem, but they couldn't distinguish between the sound of joy and the sound of weeping. It's, it's a strange sound they must have been hearing. And then the story in Ezra takes a sad turn. As this kind of interplay between the generations, but then also enemies coming in who didn't like what was going on, begin to slow down, even stall the work. With all of that, the work stalls. And if you jump forward in the book of Ezra, to Ezra chapter 5, you're introduced to two Old Testament prophets in the first couple of verses of that chapter, namely Haggai and Zechariah. And so we know that those two books of the Bible fit in that context historically. The temple foundation had been laid, but the work had stalled. And in Ezra chapter 5, God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to motivate the people back to work. But what's hard to see is that in between that, 16 years pass. In other words, the time Zerubbabel brought the people back and the altar was built and the foundation was laid. And when Haggai and then Zechariah come on the scene to motivate the people, you have more than a decade and a half where nothing has happened. That's the context of where you come to the Old Testament book of Haggai, where I want you to turn for the rest of our time this morning. The question becomes, how do you motivate people to restart something, to to get back to work, to do what's supposed to be done 16 years Later, when life has just been this certain way for a decade and a half or more, how do you possibly build that fire back within the people to get about doing what they're supposed to be doing? The book of Haggai breaks down into four speeches. We're going to study each one over the next four Sundays, including this morning, because what you see in this book is this prophet coming along and basically saying, let's get to doing what we're supposed to be doing. If you want a spoiler alert, there's all four sermons in one sentence, because that's what the whole book is about. Get to doing what we're supposed to be doing. And in this first lesson, we want to notice what Haggai says in his first speech. We read part of a few moments ago together. And as we read these verses and study these verses together, you may find some more things sprinkled throughout them. But I think what Haggai does in this first speech is, if you'll pardon the pun, he lays the foundation and helps them to see three very important things that motivate people not just to action, 
but to reaction. In other words, to getting back to what they're supposed to be doing. First of all, we see in our reading a straightforward assessment. One of the themes of Scripture, and specifically one of the themes of the prophets, is that they do not sugarcoat anything. They don't tiptoe around any subject whatsoever. The prophets were constantly straightforward in what they, what they told the people, whether it was good or whether it was bad. And no matter what the situation was, they directly told them what God wanted to be told, and often it was absolutely straightforward. And that is certainly the case when you come to this first speech from Haggai the prophet. The speech opens with one very simple statement that's sort of shocking when you know that historic background of the book. You'll find it in Haggai... 1 and verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now hang on for a second. Didn't we just say it had been 16 years since they laid the foundation? And yet now the prophet comes along and says the people are saying it's not time yet. It's not time yet to get about that work. Which, by the way, shows us that God does not just know the actions of the people. He knows their hearts. He knows what's going on. That's going to come back into play later in our lesson, by the way, in a little bit. But 16 years have passed and people said that the time just isn't here yet. And so based upon that mindset, God lays out the situation very straightforwardly for them in verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house, the house of the Lord, lies in ruins? Now, that reference to paneled houses may seem a little bit strange to us, but it's clearly meant to simply show that the people were living in nice, luxurious houses, some level of luxury for their time. They were adding, if you please, they were adding ornamentation to their to their house, their houses, while all the while the temple was just there. It was just a foundation. There was nothing being built. By the way, some scholars even suggest it's speculation. We can't be sure, but it's interesting to, to think about But some suggest that maybe what was being used to add this paneling, this fancy parts of the house, were the materials that were supposed to be used for the temple. And where they get that is very simply that when Solomon had built the temple originally, in the description of the temple, you have paneling in the temple. It's overlaid with gold, but it's built with paneled walls and such. And so possibly the materials were there and the people were actually going and getting those materials and using them to make ornamentation and fancy parts of their own house. But whether that's the case or not, the simple point is that the people were building up their own lives into some form of of nice living, simple living, just going about their everyday business while the temple was just an afterthought. And all the while, the people just didn't think, well, it's just not time yet to go over here and complete that project. That's just too much to do. But the honest assessment doesn't end there because God saw what was actually happening to the people, not just what they were doing in their lives, what was actually going on. And so he tells them in verse 6, You have so much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, what is that all about? For 16 years, these people had gotten back to 
some normal way of life, which is a good thing in a certain way. They were no longer in captivity. They're now back home. That's a good thing. And it's good that they were beginning to plow the fields and do the things they were supposed to do as far as a, a society and a civilization. But as they, if you please, as they progressed, they were leaving God more and more out of the picture. And because of that, they simply could not be satisfied. They were trying to find satisfaction in what they could do. And so Haggai comes along and says, it's as if you're taking your money and you're putting it in a bag that's filled with holes. We might simply say they were throwing stuff down the drain. That might be how we how we word that today. And isn't that the way it works when we seek satisfaction only in what we can do ourselves? We are never fully satisfied. When I begin to think that I am the solution to all of my problems, I cannot be satisfied because I know what I cannot do. I know what I cannot achieve. I know no matter how hard I work, no matter how much I do, no matter how much we as a family or even we as a congregation, no matter how much we might try, if we seek our satisfaction only in what we can do and we leave God out of the picture, we will never be satisfied. That's the assessment. And it's an honest assessment. It is absolutely straightforward. Haggai shows that God knows that what, what, not just what the people are doing, but why they are doing it and the lack of satisfaction it's bringing to their lives. But gratefully, he doesn't stop there because he also gives in the second place a call to action. God does not just give the problem. Throughout this text, the Lord also shares how these people can do what will please him. And when we please the Lord, we do find satisfaction. And so if you glance down through the verses twice, once in verse 5 and once in verse 7, you're going to see the phrase, consider your ways. You know, part of this call to action that God gives to the people is simply to pause for a moment, to pause long enough to stop and really think about what's going on, to actually look at the circumstances and the situation. We're still very early in 2018. I'm glad I got the year right. I said 2017 earlier this, this week one time. I promised myself I was never going to do it, but I did it. But we're still early in 2018. And many of you may have made resolutions for the year or maybe set some long-term goals that has happened to start the, the beginning of this year. You know, one of the ways to make a good goal or resolution is to actually stop long enough to evaluate what's actually going on. What, what do I need to improve on? Why do I need to improve on that? What can I do to make myself better or to reach out to other people who can help me with that? What is it that I really struggle with and why? That's what God is trying to get these people to do in a much larger sense. Actually pause for a moment and consider what they are doing. We live in such busy times. For many of us, from the time our eyes open in the morning until we finally shut our eyes at night, we are in a constant state of going and going and going and going. And even if we're home, even if we're home by ourselves, sometimes we, we have to have things fighting for our mind's attention. The television is on, music is playing, or whatever it is. And those things aren't necessarily wrong. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, overall, we as a people do not like being quiet and still and slow. And may I suggest, just as a thought, that that may be one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why we as a society are floating further and further away from God is because we never stop and actually consider where we are and what's going on and considering our ways. And the same can be true individually, not just as a society. How many of us individually can honestly say, I've taken time recently to consider where I am, what's going on, spiritually speaking. But once they had paused, 
Once they had considered, God gave them a direct command. You'll see it in verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. If I can paraphrase what God basically is telling them is get to doing what you're supposed to be doing. Once they had paused long enough to consider the situation, to see what was actually going on, God was saying, you know what the task is, so get about to doing it. Isn't that so much of what we need to do as well? So many times it is easy to know the right thing to do, but we're just so busy doing our own thing that we push that right or that better thing right out of our lives, right out of our minds. It's one of the reasons that the New Testament gives the teaching, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it's sin. James chapter 4 and verse 17. A huge majority of the time, I would suggest that most, if not all of us, know what the right thing to do is. But we just push that thought out of our mind because we're just too busy to do it. But I want you to consider this as well. Those in Haggai's day were not only doing bad stuff. They were simply building a civilization. They, they were plowing fields and, and eating and drinking and doing those things you just do every day. They weren't being told by Haggai, as their ancestors have been, you're falling into idolatry. That's not what's going on here. They're not being told by Haggai, as their ancestors have been, that you're involving yourself with pagan women or anything. Not, nothing like that's going on. They're simply living their lives. But as they've lived their lives and continually done so, they had left the number one thing off their list. Did you notice it in verse 8? The number one thing in verse 8 is not just go about building the temple. The number one thing in verse 8 is why? Where God said that I may be glorified. Folks, God did not need the temple in order to prove he was God. That's not what's going on here. God wanted the people to do what was right so that he would get the glory. And we as Christians need to remember that no matter what we are doing in life, it always needs to be done, all that we do needs to be done, so that God gets the glory. We need to talk to people about Jesus so that God gets the glory. We need to help those who are hurting so that God gets the glory. Parents, we need to teach our children the Bible first and foremost so that God gets the glory through their lives. When we're on the job, everything that we do needs to be done so that God gets the glory. And anything and everything else we do is secondary to that. And if we're, if we're honest, we know that's right. And so God is just saying to us through this book, get about doing it. It's a call to action. But then in the third place. You also have in this text a reminder of control. In the last part of the speech, which, by the way, is beyond what we read in our scripture reading, God makes it clear that as much as the people have been living their own lives and as much as they have been thinking they had it all together, he was the one who was ultimately in control. Read verses 9 through 11 with me of Haggai 1. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Now, in your mind's eye, or maybe even your finger, run back up a couple verses. Remember what God had said earlier about them putting their money in bags with holes. That's found back up in verse 6. 
God now, at the latter part of the speech with Haggai, is showing them why that's the case. They had forgotten him. They had pushed him out of first place. And so he was making things a struggle with them. You think, wait, this is the Old Testament, though, where God had told them over and over and over again, that's what would happen. Way back in Deuteronomy, he had told them, if you are faithful, your crops will produce your enemies won't stand a chance. And on and on and on the list went. If you're unfaithful, the exact opposite will happen. It will be a struggle for you. He had told them that constantly throughout the centuries. And all the while, they thought they could do it better in their own way. All the while, they thought they could, they could seek peace and satisfaction and joy their own way. I mentioned a moment ago that God didn't need the temple to prove anything. Solomon had said that when the first temple was built. And Solomon led that absolutely incredible prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8 that this house cannot contain you, speaking to God. It's, it's, it's a building. It's a magnificent building. But it doesn't really prove anything. Stephen remember the same thing in Acts chapter 7 as he gave his defense that the temple, while beautiful and spectacular, didn't really, quote-unquote, mean anything as far as proving God who was who he, he said he was. But these people had continued in their busyness and their self-interests Forgetting that building the temple was not to prove who God was, but to show they trusted in who God was. And so God made their lives more difficult as they pushed him further out. Now, that's not to say that in our day and time, if if we just follow God, that we can go home this afternoon and click on our computers and call up our bank account, and all of a sudden our bank accounts will be large we've ever seen. I'm not saying that. Or you call up your mortgage, and wow, my mortgage got paid off while I was at church, because I went. To, that's not what we're saying at all. That'd be wonderful if it happened, but that's not, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is simply this. If we seek peace and joy and satisfaction and contentment in our own way, we will never have it. And life will be more and more difficult as we seek it. But if we seek peace and joy and contentment and satisfaction in God, will everything be perfect all the time? No, but we will find those things. We will have them. He's promised it. Old Testament and New Testament. We sing words quite often. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds the future and I know who holds my hand. We sing words like, God holds the future in His hand, and every heart He understands. On Him depend. May I ask this question? Am I living in such a way that I'm proving those words are true? Sometimes, frankly, I'm not. But He is the one who's in control. And while there are things He expects us to do, one of those things is simply to trust Him and to follow Him. That's true of us individually, but it's also true of us as a collective, us as a congregation. Do we, as the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ, order what we do in such a way that it shows that God really is in control? Not just that we're going to do things our way all the time. The date was November the 4th, 2001. Many of you were there. In fact, to say that more correctly, many of you were here because it was a Sunday. In fact... Many of you had a hand in that date, maybe directly, maybe financially, many of you through prayer. November the 4th, 2001, was the date on which this building that we're sitting in this morning, or standing in in my case, was dedicated and had its open house. We met in this building for about, about six weeks before that, having Sunday morning services, but it was on that date that we had the official dedication and 
big potluck meal, because you can't do anything without a meal, right? Had a potluck meal planned and tours of the building and on and on it went. Brother Andy Kaiser, of course, preached that morning, challenged us to see this building that we're sitting in this morning as a workshop, a place that we continually see as a place to go out of and work throughout the community and even throughout the world, as a place to always be seen as to the glory of God. If you were here, and I was, it's a day you probably haven't forgotten and won't forget anytime soon. It was a day to be proud of. So many prayers were answered. This congregation had every reason to be grateful, proud, and honored. The spirit was high. Tours were given. That was November the 1st, 4th, 2001. In other words, that was just slightly over 16 years ago. I wanted to preach through the book of Haggai for a lot of reasons. One was I'd never preached through it before. One is because when we were studying in my Bible school class, I was fascinated by it. But when I came across that little connection, I could not get that out of my mind. That's 16 years and two months ago now, in a couple of days, we sat in this auditorium, many of us did, for the first time, quote-unquote, officially. And we sort of dedicated the building. And it was a wonderful day. And I've begun to wonder, in my own life and in our life as a congregation, have we just moved on with our life? Have we just moved on with our life? Have we stopped living with the same fire, the same excitement that brought the building of, of this particular structure, that brought it about and brought it such a, such a spirit to such a wonderful, wonderful day. It's not about buildings. We all understand that. It's not about the fact this is a fancy, beautiful building. It's about something was accomplished, but it was supposed to be something for the future. Folks, I want you to listen to this question. Do we still see this building as a symbol of what we did Instead of a symbol of what we still have left to do. Can I ask the question again? Do we see this as just something we did? Or as a symbol of what we still have to do? 16 years is a long time. We have a lot of people in this room who aren't 16 years old. And isn't that wonderful? That there are children and babies and teenagers who weren't even born. There are a lot of people sitting in these pews who, who, who have become members here in those 16 years because of baptism, because of placing membership, moving in the community. Isn't that wonderful? It's so encouraging. There are some who have moved away and come back in, in the course of 16 years. Some have gone to college and come back. Folks, I suppose that everyone sitting in this room knows what the church is supposed to be doing. Now, we preach about it and teach about it just to remind ourselves and motivate ourselves. But we know what we're supposed to be doing. We know that there are people who are lost, even in our own community. We know we need to teach them the gospel. We know there are people who are hurting financially, relationally, in marriages, in parenting, 
in health, in, in ways with their minds. We know there are people who are hurting and we need to be helping. We know that we need to be working and praying and giving so that those things come about. But may I simply ask you, as I have asked myself for weeks as I thought about this sermon and prayed about this sermon, have I gotten so busy just living my life that I've begun to push God out of first place? And it's time to get back to work. May I say that even more strongly? It's past time we get back to work. It was a straightforward assessment from God. It was a call to action and a powerful but simple reminder that God is the ultimate one in control. Haggai has more to say, but the people got back to work. May I ask you this morning, as I've asked myself, being simply reminded of those things, is that enough for you to say, it's time for me to get back to work? Maybe this morning as a Christian, you're not living that way. You're not doing stuff that's necessarily sinful or wrong all the time, but you just sort of just living life. You're just doing your own thing. And the priority of God is not there. This is the time to make that right. This is the time to rededicate yourself, to be restored, as we often say, and to say it's time for me to put him first. Or maybe this morning you're here and you've never begun that Christian walk. You've never put Christ on in baptism. There is nothing more important we could do all day long and to assist you in becoming a Christian based upon your faith, your repentance, your confession, and then being baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Is it your time? If it is, will you come while we stand and sing to encourage you?